Continuing this morning once again in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1, focusing on verses 1 through 6, Abraham saw this day. Last week, we saw that which is new of grace to us is ancient to some, and that which is ancient to some is timeless to God. For the Lord speaks to his prophet Isaiah concerning the Christ that is to come some seven centuries before the incarnation. And he says this, I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon." From the prisons who sit in darkness. I am the Lord and that is my name. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. Behold the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare. Before they spring forth. I tell you of them. The promise of the Christ. Was first in the hearing of Adam when it was spoken in the midst of a curse to the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, the Lord speaks to the serpent of old and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When Adam heard the Lord speak this, It was a promise of hope to him. But it was a promise that was shouted, shrouded in mystery. Hopeful, but very far away. But unlike the promise that Adam overheard in the garden, the promise would eventually come definitively to the man Abraham. And the children of Abraham from that day began to count the generations across the pillars of redemption, 42 generations in all. From the time that the promise definitively came to Abraham till the coming of the king. And from the kings among Israel until the day of the exile. And from the exile until the coming of the Christ. And they counted and they watched and they waited and they hoped. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 17. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so, even though we can look in Scripture to before the time of Abraham and we can see the the promise being heard by Adam, we can see the promise being given to Shem, it was always a great mystery. But to Abraham, the promise came in a different way. And so, Matthew doesn't begin his genealogy with Adam. He doesn't even begin his genealogy with Shem. He begins it with the one to whom the promise came in clarity. 
to the one of whom it is spoken in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now if you've been around Mount Zion for very long at all, you know that any time that we read that, that the next thing we're going to do is connect that to what the Apostle Paul writes to the New Testament church in the book of Galatians in chapter 3, verse 8, and he sheds light on what is said in Genesis, and it says that the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And so here in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3, we see two things. We see the gospel being preached to Abraham. And Paul tells us by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that inspired Moses to write the events that happened to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, this same spirit says, Okay, let me give you the footnotes. When I said this, when the Father said this to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed, this was my doing and my working in the promise, knowing that the Gentiles would receive this same promise that Abraham received, and they would receive it in the same manner that Abraham received it. They would receive it by faith, for he is the father of faith. And so this is the gospel being spoken to him. There's even more than that there if you backtrack and look at what is said about the generations and the land promise that is to come. There is even the means by which this gospel is going to come forth. This was the gospel spoken to Abraham. And this is what it looks like in its unfolding. I mean, there's Abraham just kicking it in her. And the voice of the Lord comes and says, Listen, Chaldean dog. You're out of here. Because there is something that I am going to do that will glorify my name and save my people. And it's been going on since before this creation existed. But you're going to be the first one that gets to know some of the details on how it's going to work. So up, out of Ur, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you the Ibiru, the crossed over one. I will make your name great and I will make you a great people so that your children are like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. I will give you a land and plant you in it. And I will be your God and you will be my people. And in you, all of the rest of the Gentile dogs that I called you forth out of, they're going to be blessed as well. Looks like this. And it's unfolding. And buddy, they knew it was a deal. They were counting the generations from that day forward. Looks like this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. 
And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So he doesn't begin with Adam or Shem though they would have been excellent candidates. He begins with Abraham, who the promise came to in clarity. He begins with Abraham because Paul tells us that when the Lord called him forth and said, I will be your God and you will be my people and in you all the world will be blessed, he was speaking the gospel to him. And so if you're going to give the genealogy of the gospel, because friends, gospel simply means good news. And I'm here to testify today that the gospel, therefore, is not a concept. It's not a story. It's not something that gets written on a track that you hand out. The gospel is definitively a person. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. And so if you're going to begin with the genealogy of the gospel, you begin with the man that it first came to in a way that it could be understood. As a matter of fact, what you see in Matthew chapter 1 is the beginning of the gospel that Abraham saw. Now, When you look at what's said there in Galatians, and we've spent a lot of time here at Mount Zion looking at it, and I'm sure we'll spend a lot more time in the future. It is one of those critical verses in understanding the way that the gospel's been functioning across time. But when we we look at that at Mount Zion, um, you know, you might be tempted to, to look at that and say, you know, okay... So here's, here's the truth of God, and we know he does these things. I mean, you know, the entirety of the gospel is wound up in this one statement to the serpent that he shall crush your head. But man, that's a really tightly packed gospel, a gospel that men on their own don't really have any ability to grasp or understand the way it's going to be working. There's a hope there to be believed in, but it is a hope that is just nearly of blind faith. There's not a lot of understanding that is going on, but what comes to Abraham is different. So when we look at the statement out of Galatians, and you say, okay, here's his statement, in you shall all the world be blessed, you know, maybe that's not as hidden of a gospel, maybe that's not as tightly packed as, um, you know, as as I will dwell in the midst of the tents of Shem, or, um, you know, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Maybe it's not that tightly packed. It gives us a little bit more information. There's going to be blessing here. It's going to be for Abraham and his children particularly, but somehow all of the rest of the world is going to be connected to that blessing through him. There's a little bit more there, but there's still not a lot to write a dissertation on. You can't put a, you can't write a very big gospel track just based on that alone. It's not really a functional gospel. Maybe it's a testimonial gospel, and it's more detailed testimonial gospel than the one that Adam had or the one that Shem had, but it's still not a functional gospel. I mean, I can't take that and walk into a, a children's Sunday school class and teach them the gospel in such a way that they can put their faith in Jesus Christ based off that alone. And I would say that is true. 
And I would also say that that is not all that Abraham received. Oh, the gospel was preached to him in this. Absolutely. But that wasn't the end of the story. In the Gospel of John in chapter 8, in verses 53 through 59, Jesus is contending with the Jews. They're coming at him pretty hard making a lot of derogatory statements, talking down to him. Isn't it fair for us to say that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? You know, that kind of trash talk. And he's contending back and forth with them about what the truth is and the way that you receive it. And in verse 53, they ask him this question, because he's referenced Abraham here. And they say, okay, let's talk about Abraham. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered. Now, man, if you're going to ask Christ who does he think he is, which that's based, I mean, you want to paraphrase. Who do you make yourself out to be? I mean, the paraphrase into probably a more modern vernacular would be, who do you think you are? If you're going to ask Jesus Christ who do you think you are, you better be ready for the answer when it comes. And they're not. They're not prepared at all for what's about to come out of his mouth, but they ask the question. And it's a challenging question. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you've not known Him. I know Him. And if I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced. And that word right there, is, it actually means to exult. It means to be ecstatic with joy. To, to, put, to heap joy on joy on joy on joy on joy. Your father Abraham rejoiced. He, he exulted that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And you say you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, I would have you note that when we look at this passage in John chapter 8, we're usually looking at it talking about the deity and the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. Because he's having these debates with these guys. They say, you think you're better than Abraham? And Jesus goes, "Mm, yeah, pretty much seeing how I called him forth out of nothing and held him together all of his days. But, you know, if I glorified myself, then, you know, it's the Father that glorifies me. And and they're talking along, and they said, man, you're not even 50 years old. Abraham's been dead at this point for 2,000 years. Abraham's been dead for about as long before they were having this conversation as, as we are from them having this conversation. It's pretty much an even split. So basically at this point in time, Abraham had been dead as long as Christ has been crucified to now. And so, you know, here's Jesus and, you know, he's in his 30s and they say you're not even 50, which was kind of the standard, I guess, for wisdom or whatever amongst their, amongst their culture. And, you know, this was kind of where you ascended to, to elder, you know, revered status. You're not even 50 years old yet. And you say, you know, Abraham, and they're mocking him. And Jesus looks at him and says, look, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. 
And it wasn't just a hope for the future. He actually saw it and was glad. And they say, man, how can that even be? And he says, because before Abraham was, I am. Now, notice the grammar real quick, because I just can't just pass over this. Notice the grammar. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He's not saying, I'm really, really, really old. He says, before Abraham was, I am. It's in the present tense in in the Greek. And so he's saying, right now, as I'm talking to you at this moment, I am also before Abraham existed. And of course, the logical extension of that is, I am outside of time. That I'm everywhere. I'm not at just some point before Abraham existed, but I'm before creation, and I'm after creation, and I'm right now with you, and I'm in the middle of Abraham's business, and I'm before Abraham's business, and I'm with Abraham when he's an old man, and it's all happening for me right now. And they know exactly what the implication is. They know exactly what he's saying. They know he's claiming to be God, which is why at that moment they stop arguing with him and decide it's time to kill him for blasphemy. And they pick up stones to do it. Okay, when we normally look at this passage, that's typically what we're focusing on, is the deity of Christ that is on display here. And it's an incredible passage. One of my favorites. I just love it. But that's not what I want to focus on this morning. But I had to touch on it. Couldn't just leave it on the table. You know, it's like deviled eggs. you got to have one. What I want to focus on this morning is on what Christ says about Abraham. And so what Christ says about Abraham is this. One is about his heart, his character, and he has this heart and he has this character because Christ put it in him. But one is is about his heart and his character, and the other is about an event that he experienced. And so the first one about his heart When Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And so there is something that was coming in the future for Abraham that had to do with Christ that Abraham rejoiced that he would see. There was something that was coming that had to do with Christ that was still future for Abraham, that it caused Abraham to exult, to heap joy upon joy upon joy. It wasn't just one of those things like, oh yeah, that would be cool and that would make me happy. No, it would make him ecstatic. Joy upon joy upon joy upon joy upon joy. Okay, so what was this thing that was coming that had to do with Christ that would cause Abraham to be so joyous on the day that he finally got to see it? And the answer is this. He rejoiced that he would see, Christ says, my day. The Greek here is Himera. And the reason I point it out is not because you need to know it, but because of what it means. The Greek Himera literally means a time. A time. Not time. There's a different word for time. A time. So we're not talking about the concept of time here. The Greeks use a completely different word for that. We're thinking about the concept of time, space time, the way time passes and the clock ticks and, and, and there's a moment that comes after a moment that comes after a moment. You can't go back to the past and you can't go forward to the future. You're stuck as a human in the present. We're not talking about that kind of time. We're talking about a time. 
a specific time, a period of time. The reason we translate it as day in the English is because this is one of those words in the Greek that day is almost identical to its usage between the English and the Greek. And so when we talk about a day in the English, we are talking about a a time, a period of time. And that period can be different, and it's defined by context. Interestingly enough, in the Greek, it's defined by context as well. So sometimes you can be talking about a day, and that means a 24-hour day. 24 hours on the clock, a day, calendar day. And sometimes you're talking about the day, and it's, that's the period of time that the sun is up as opposed to being down. It's the day. Or sometimes we use it in even, even looser periods of time. When you say, well, back in my granddad's day, things weren't this way. Well, what day was that? April the 4th? No, we're talking about a, a period of time, a, a time. And so... Jesus is speaking to them, and he says, there is a day that I have, a period of time, that for Abraham was still future. He speaks of that day in the present tense as he talks to these Jews. So the day that he is talking about, that Abraham rejoiced that he would once one time see, is the day of his incarnation. It is the time from the incarnation until the resurrection from the dead. This is the day that Jesus speaks of. This is the period of time that Abraham rejoiced that he would get to see. And then Jesus says this, not only before Abraham was, I am, but this day that we are currently in right now, that Abraham rejoiced that he would see, he did see it. Not he is seeing it. Notice this. He doesn't say, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He is seeing it, present tense, and is glad. Because if that was the case, you could paint a picture where you had Abraham back in the day, right? And the gospel is preached to him, and he has some understanding of it, and he goes, okay, I'm going to see the time of Christ. This is the way that all the world will be blessed through you. This is the way that God's going to be your God and you will be His people. This is the way that you're going to receive the land. This is the way that your generations are going to be like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And one day I'm going to see it. And now you have Abraham looking down from heaven, seeing Christ's day. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said he would rejoice. He rejoiced that he would see this time right here, and he saw it. Past tense. It is not simply that the gospel was preached to Abraham in a cryptic statement about all nations being blessed. Somehow, Abraham saw the day of Christ that is recorded in the Gospels. That blows my mind. While the Gospel was spoken to Abraham in saying, and you all the world will be blessed, Abraham ended up seeing a lot more than that. Christ is speaking in the now, the first century. 
and yet he is before Abraham. And therefore, in answering the Jews' question, how does he see Abraham? The answer is because he is then, right now, as well as he is before them. I want you to consider the promise in its working because this is some heady stuff. The promise that came to Abraham would connect the whole world to the blessing of God through Abraham. As a matter of fact, there's a couple mentioned that we're going to look at here in the next few weeks in right here in the first six verses of Matthew about Rahab and Ruth. It would connect the whole world in blessing to God through this man. And it would do so in a very ordained path. In that path, that way that God was going to connect the world to the gospel through Abraham was going to come generationally. It's why they're so big on keeping these genealogies. They knew out of the promise that it was going to come through the offspring of Abraham and not directly through the body of Abraham himself. Turn over to Genesis chapter 26, verse 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 26, verse 1 through 5, we see the promise now moving from Abraham to his son Isaac. In chapter 26, it says, There was famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to you your offspring all of these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments and my statutes and my laws. So the, the promise originally came to Abraham when the gospel was preached to him. This is before he saw it, but when it was first preached to him, and what was the promise? The promise that through you, all the world will be blessed, and the means by which that will come is through the generations that shall come from you. Those like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. Here's that promise in its first step of fulfillment. Now it is coming to his son, Isaac, the first offspring. And the Lord speaks to Isaac and he says, I'm going to do the same thing for you that I did for Abraham. I'm giving you the same. I will will perform my oath for you just as I performed it for him. And through you all the world will be blessed. And by the way, we're going to connect all of this land promise to it as well. And so it moves through the generations. From Abraham to Isaac. And then from Isaac to Jacob. And we're going to look at Jacob here in just a second, but before we do, I want you to get something in your head here. While the promise of God to Abraham and his generations, while the promise of God to Abraham contains both generations and land, they are only the means of the promise. 
They are not the substance of the promise. Guys, and I got to tell you, this is one of the places that, I mean, if, if you could fix that misunderstanding amongst the blood-born children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob today, they would be born again. I mean, this is, this is the block that they're stumbling on, is, is they think that the land and the generations are the promise, when in fact the land and the generations are only the means by which the promise is manifest. Abraham knew it, but unfortunately his progeny don't. Okay, so while the promise to Abraham contains generations and land, they are the means, not the substance. Okay, with that in mind, now let's check out Jacob. Because what we find out in Jacob is this, that the substance of the promise is required to obtain the means of the promise. Now, if you're a logical thinker, immediately the brakes start grinding for you right there a little bit. I'm going to say it one more time, and then I'll explain it after we read. Check it out. The substance of the promise is required to obtain the means of the promise. Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 4. So now you have Isaac. He's an old man. He's getting ready to send Jacob off. The promise is going to follow Jacob. Isaac called Jacob, and he blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave Abraham. I want to read that one more time. May he give you the blessing of Abraham. What blessing? I will be your God and you will be my people and in you all The earth shall be blessed. May he give you the blessing of Abraham. May he give you the promise of Abraham. May he give you the gospel of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. God says, or Isaac says to Jacob, if you're going to take possession of the land, something has to happen. If you're going to take possession of the land, out of which all of these generations will come, if you're going to take possession of the land, there's only one way you can get it. May the Lord grant you the blessing of Abraham that you may possess the land of your sojournings. The only way, Jacob, that you get the land and by it, produce the generations that are promised, is if you first have the blessing that came to Abraham from God. The ability to possess the land and the generations that will come out of it, that which is the very means by which the Christ will come, is dependent upon first having the substance of the promise. Now, like I said, if you're a logical thinker, your gears should be grinding pretty hard at this point in time. 
And if you have some classical training in logical thinking, immediately what you're going to say is that is a circular redundancy. It is a fallacy. It doesn't make any sense. And therefore, it is a bad argument. Because the reality is, if you have a means at which you arrive at an end, but the only way to get the means is to have the end first, then you will never arrive at the end. How do you open the safe if all you need is the key and the key is locked in the safe? Listen, Jacob, the means is going to be land that produces generations through you. And the only way to get it is to get the promise that the land and the generations are going to produce. Seems like a fool's gambit. That's a circular fallacy. And you would be correct, unless. You would be correct unless the one who promised stands outside of time standing in a courtyard full of accusing Jews 2,000 years ago going, right now I'm there. I want you to see God's heart towards Abraham. Because that's really what's driving this deal. You get that, right? I mean, there's no logical payoff for God here outside of its, his heart that desires these things. I want you to see God's heart towards Abraham, and I think we see it probably the most clearly in, in Genesis chapter 18. And so in Genesis chapter 18, if you kind of know the narrative here, the Lord has come. The Lord has come to Abraham in the midst of the heat of the day when, when he had his tent pitched under some oak trees. Trying to get a little shade. And the Lord has come to him and he has spent the day with him. And now now he is going to depart. And when he departs, he is about to rain fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. For the detestableness of their sin. And so, as he's walking away, Abraham is doing what you do. If a deity shows up at your door... (laughs) When he's ready to go, you don't just say, okay, thanks, bye. You see him along his way. And in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 16, it says that the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, and I want you to, this is God thinking to himself, speaking to himself. Makes me feel better when I talk to myself. (laughs) The Lord said, You say, man, what does Sodom and Gomorrah have to do with grace? Everything. But what I want to focus on is is the heart of God towards, towards his elect. The heart of God towards the man he has chosen. And that's what he's going to talk about here. He says, I'm going to do something a certain way because I've chosen him. So because my choice was with him, therefore I'm going to act a particular way according to that choice. The men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that which I am about to do? 
Shall I hide from Abraham that which I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham that he has promised him. And then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Okay. So the Lord is getting ready to absolutely obliterate these two cities, to wipe them completely off the map in such a way that what at the time was an incredibly green and fertile plain today is a wasteland where nothing will grow. 4,000 years later, it's covered with nothing but salt and bitumen and black burnt carbon. So he's getting ready to do him some stuff. And he asks himself, shall I keep this from Abraham? But not just out of a curiosity or do I feel obligated to tell him. He says, should I keep it from him seeing how I have chosen him to be the one that brings forth the promise? Seeing how I've chosen him to be the one through which all the world will be blessed. You know what? Since I've chosen him and made that choice for him to be this guy, I'm going to show him the thing I'm going to do. I'm going to show him what I'm going to do to Sodom. And then we have the kind of famous back and forth where God is molding Abraham. (laughs) Abraham thinks he's bargaining with God. God's molding Abraham into what he wants him to be. Ends up pulling... Lot out and burning the rest. Okay, so here's God's heart. There's going to be glory and judgment. This is my glory, and I have this man who I've chosen to bring forth the promise of the gospel. I've given him this promise that the means of the land and the generations may be in place and they may be obtained that here in 2,000 years it will be able to say, therefore the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. So should I, I'm about to glorify myself in judgment, a judgment that the gospel itself would be the very answer to. Should I hide it from him? No, I shouldn't. I should tell him. Okay. First question. Do you think that God is most glorified in judgment or do you think God is most glorified in salvation? Or do you think they're equal? I guarantee this, God is not less glorified in salvation. And so with that in mind, let's go back and look at what the previous portion of the day had held. In Genesis chapter 18... Oh, let's, I put verse 9 up there, but let's just go all the way back to, chat, to verse 1. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So we're talking midday here, folks. It's hot. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, 
If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three cests of flour. Now, you know, you couldn't just go to the bread box in the freezer. Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have a pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall indeed, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Okay. For all of you guys who have ever field-dressed a deer, I've seen the guys on YouTube that can do it in like two minutes or whatever. It takes me and Mark about 15, and we both tend to be real bloody by the time it's all said and done. And that's just field-dressed. That's in no way prepared in order that you may eat it. Here a couple years ago, we had a, had a steer that got its foot hung up in a in a um, in a hay ring, broke its leg, and uh, couldn't get it loaded out in the pasture. Got to do something with it, and found a butcher slaughterhouse that would take it. Caleb shot it, and we I mean, this thing's big now, and we've got to we've got to do something about this calf. We've got to get it field dressed out. And I thought, no sweat, man. I can field dress a deer in fifteen minutes. I know how this deal goes. We'll get the We'll, we'll get him opened up, we'll get him cleaned out, and we'll get him hoisted up on a tractor and in the truck and over to the slaughterhouse. You don't field dress a steer in 15 minutes. It's a whole different ball game. The bones are like two-by-fours. The things weigh six, 700 pounds. There's dead weight, and you got three guys trying to roll one around, get it in the right position, not bust a gut. It's a deal, and that's just to get the guts out of it. Get that sucker hung up, skint, bled out, have the usable pieces of meat cut off of it, then be able to prepare those and set them in front of somebody while the wife's in the house baking bread that has to be, the flour has to be ground first. This is not a quick ordeal, which is why you see them come in the heat of the day, but they don't leave for Sodom until evening. They spend the majority of the day sitting under the oaks talking to Abraham. During that time, Scripture records a conversation that literally takes four minutes. 
What, pray tell, do you think they talked about? When the man of God bows his knee and says, don't pass by your servant since you've seen fit to come my way. What do you think God speaks about to the man that he has chosen to bring forth his promise of the gospel and through his flesh the coming of the Christ through generations in the land? What do you think he speaks about with him when they have idle time? Do you think he speaks about his own glory? A glory that can only be seen in Jesus Christ according to the gospel of John chapter 1 verse 18. Do you think he speaks about the reason that he has called Abram to himself? Do you think he speaks about the reason that he pulled him forth out of Ur? Do you think he speaks about the reason that he created everything that you see and are for the glory of his name in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you think that's what he talked about? I'm guessing it is. Now, I cannot prove to you in the text that this is the moment that Abraham saw the day of Christ. I can't prove it to you. It could have happened when he called him forth out of Ur. It could have happened when he cut the covenant with him and the Lord moved as a flaming smoke pot between the pieces of the animals that were divided. It could have happened at some time that's not recorded in the text. But if there's a time recorded, man, I can't find a better one than this. When you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sitting outside of your tent, contemplating themselves, what should we hide from Him seeing how we have chosen Him to do this very thing? And we know for a fact that He saw it can't think of a better time to see it than here. And so, Matthew doesn't start with Adam or Shem. It is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, to whom the promise came in clarity, to whom it came person to person to whom it came in such a way that 2,000 years before the day of Christ Abraham saw the day of Christ and rejoiced and rejoiced and rejoiced and rejoiced so that it can truly be said now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way have you seen his day does it make you rejoice If you haven't, you're not born again. And I would beseech you to see it. But if you have and you're getting beat up, then I beseech you to see it. For it will cause you to heap joy upon joy upon joy. It will strengthen you to walk through what could otherwise not be walked through. For he came that his people would have joy, his joy, and that in them it would be complete. It was for Abraham, I pray that today it would be for you as well. Let's pray.